Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, both you and I have gotten some love from the Magic Channel recently as raids on Twitch. Yeah, you getting that sweet, sweet post uh, PT hookup or whatever, Kaldheim Championship hookup. There you go. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, um, and uh, and I got the post Strixhaven preview thing on Thursday host. So yeah, I'm, I'm feeling feeling that love. I also Ben. I don't know about you, my office is slowly uh, filling with lots of magic swag. Not that I'm mad about it, but I got I got to do some giveaways this week on stream. I have too much stuff hanging out in my house. Nice, nice. Yeah, I am also overflowing with scarves from Strixhaven at the moment. <laughs> I've never yeah. worn a scarf in my life and I now have five. So do you think you're going to be a convert now? Big Strixhaven scarf guy? I will confess when I made my little video where I played clarinet and like read my acceptance letter, which was the coolest thing on the planet. That is the closest I'm ever going to get to getting an acceptance letter to Hogwarts, which was unreal. But I watched a YouTube video about the different ways to tie and wear scarves so that I didn't look like a doofus. Good. Getting that research in. That's the quality content that Lords of Limited put out. Scarf wearing research. There we go. All right. So today, Ben, we're saying goodbye to a goodie in my mind called Time Limited. We are dropping our 50 takes in 50 minutes episode. So if you've never been with us before, as we bid adieu to uh, a limited format, we sort of rattle off a, a 50 takes uh, episode here where we try and you know synthesize all of our feelings, get some hot takes in there, get some power rankings as well. And it's a great way to send off a format, but also a great reference for returning to a format. You know, the first thing I did when they said War of the Spark was coming back, I was like, oh, I haven't drafted this set in a couple of years. So I just went and pulled up the show notes for our 50 takes episode for War of the Spark <laughs> and read through them. And I was like, oh, yeah, OK, great. I remember all these things now. And these are really good to go. Oh, yeah. The Opalan Bright Druid. That's the best green common. OK, that's what we thought. So I'll stick with that. And and hopefully we'll have that for Kaldheim as uh, as something that folks can return to to this episode. So before we get into all of that, some housekeeping things. First things first is the Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where you can go to give back to the show if you so choose. Everybody who does that gets access to the Lords of Limited Discord, which is the place to be for a new format. Strixhaven is almost upon us, Ben. We'll uh, we'll have the full spoiler in, I think, just, just a couple weeks. Um, and once that drops, uh, you can bet that everybody in the Discord is going to be pouring over it, figuring out what to do, maybe building uh, archetype skeletons, that sort of thing. A lot of discussions, a lot of fruitful discussions happening in the Discord in anticipation of breaking it wide open in the first week of a format. Um, and of course, we want to welcome our new patrons to the fold the first week that they join. So this week, we are welcoming Zach, Andy, Gabriel, Curtis, Max, Brent, and John. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, I cannot say thank you enough. One of my favorite new additions to the Discord is the Say Hello channel, where people that join can just like pop in and talk a little bit about themselves. It's really cool to just read about people as they join and you know, be able to say hello right back. Yeah, yeah, that has definitely been really nice. Something that I think we got a lot of requests for sort of intermittently or like dispersed throughout the past few years of the Discord. And we finally uh, put that into practice a couple months ago. And it's been great. In addition to the Patreon, the show is now brought to you by Channel Fireball, channelfireball.com. Best place to go for anything and everything you need magic related. Strixhaven is coming up. So if you see some sweet preview cards that you need for your <coughs> constructed deck, I mean, I suppose we'll allow it, but... Uh, <laughs> You could go to Channel Fireball and pre-order some singles. Maybe maybe Commander. Maybe that's a little more excusable than standard. But regardless, wow. if you need some singles or packs, anything of that nature, you know, you get a booster box to draft with your friends once you're all vaccinated, that sort of thing. Channel Fireball has you covered. That or CFB Pro, we're putting out articles. I'm sure you and Alex and I are going to be putting out a lot of Strixhaven content. 
on CFP Pro in the coming weeks. So anything and everything you do over there, please use code LOL uh, when we send you over there. We would really appreciate it. Yeah, a little uh, shill for the CFP Pro articles. I dropped something that I'd, I'd been meaning to write and you gave me a little nudge this week to do so. I wrote an article about cooking versus following a recipe in terms of drafting that I think turned out really well and just an exploration of how I think following pick orders and tier lists should be used as a tool, not a crutch as it is sometimes. And I, I think it turned out really well. Yeah, it was a great article. Really enjoyed it. All right, Ben. Well, I, I think we got nothing else to do but to, to get 50 minutes on the clock and rattle through these points. Are you ready? I suppose I am. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I'm going to start us off here with point number one. Kaldheim was a format of dichotomies. What do we mean by this? Yeah. So <laughs> I just am picturing my sixth grade flute class saying, Mr. Warney, why do you use such big words? <laughs> Did that? Is that real? Yeah, they always heckle me about using words like dichotomy. Wow. And then we I teach them what the words mean and learning happens outside a band. It's great. But anyway, so I think there's a lot of things that exist simultaneously that feel weird because partially the format evolved so much. So if you're listening to this 58 takes episode, you know, coming back to it, you need to know which stage of call time you're in, right? Because I think more than any other format, this evolved like every single week with new things happening, new decks being discovered. Do you think that's true? I, I definitely think so. Maybe not each and every week, but it definitely felt like there were maybe three or four major shifts that happened, you know, from, okay, weeks one and two. My philosophy was no one is drafting snow appropriately and I'm going to snap up all the snow lands. You know, my grind to mythic initially in my whatever, 24, 25 drafts, 75% of those decks were three or more colors. I was splish splashing around. I was drafting the snow stuff. That was the thing that I felt like was completely underrated. And then, you know, the rest of the world caught up and there was a major shift. Yeah. And then I think it was Operation Red White after that, I think, were, were the decks that were really red, white, red, blue, the two color streamlined decks for a couple of weeks. And then it was circling it back around to discovering the green non-snow decks with Ravenous Linworm, Jasper Sentinel, that sort of stuff. And now I'm really on the pick rune, not even pick necessarily, but the rune, the white rune and equipment cycle of the format for myself. Right. I mean, the, the common equipment is good. Pick and Tormentor's Helm, I think, being the best of the bunch. And then yeah, the cycle of uncommon, whatever you want to call them, kicker equipment, living weapon equipment. Those are all just insanely powerful as well. So I think as a result of all that shifting, there were cards that were, you know, simultaneously overrated and underrated, depending on which stage of the format you were in. And I think one thing that is true about the format is that the decks all felt the same, you know, like snow felt very similar, but yet each snow deck was also slightly unique, much like snowflakes, cue, happy music. Um, I'm very interested in a new podcast host, incidentally, <laughs> if there's anyone out there. <laughs> and, you know, things like red, white aggro, you know, the aggro decks felt very homogenous, but yet they were all like had their own little thing, whether you were trying to do white rune and pick or run amok and whatever. Or the idea that snowlands were really, really good. And then, you know, at certain points, you weren't interested in the snowlands at all because snow was super overdrafted. So all of those types of dichotomies, I think, just really existed in the format. The other thing, and I think I'm maybe spoiling a point in the future, but it feels like this is wrapped up in here, is that the the, the content creator world or the, the draft fanatic world... We never really all got on the same page. I think even you and I had very different experiences. You know, you wrote up a bulk of these points and even going through them, a lot of them, I was like, this doesn't really resonate with me. And that doesn't mean that you're right or you're wrong or I'm right or I'm wrong. I feel really strongly that the, that flat 
power level of all the commons or most of the commons led to a lot of people just carving their own path or figuring out their own things in terms of what they wanted to do. And I think by and large, you could do that. So that, that, that sort of, you know, we all never, especially coming off a format like Zendikar Rising, where I think we all were just on the same page by the end of the format about what the best things to do were and what the worst things to do were. Yep, I agree completely. Number two, Snow is the most powerful deck in the format, but also has a high fail rate. I even wanted to check in with you just before we recorded. I was like, do we still think this is true? And I think, you know, in the abstract, yes. And I, but I think it just comes up so much less frequently, you know, maybe one in five, six, seven drafts, you get that nuts snow deck. Whereas, you know, at the start of the format, it was every, every other draft, at least for me, you know, where you could just get all the good enablers and all the good payoffs late or whatever. You could carve that out for yourself. Yeah. I have stopped going after it hard enough that I don't think I'm ever going to end up with the nuts snow deck again. I'm more likely to end up with, you know, an ice bind pillar and like five or six snow lands and a Berg strider, like snow packages where you have five or six snow lands, as opposed to like the 12 snow land decks I was drafting early in the format. Yeah, yeah. I think like day one, I had a 15 land snow deck with Icebreaker Kraken, which still wasn't very good. That card sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, the abundance of fixing enabled the snow decks. And this is more fixing than I think we've ever seen, not only in green, but just colorless. Yeah, it was weird. So, you know, just sort of in order of goodness, I think Spirit of the Alder Guard, Top of the Heap, followed closely by Path of the World Tree, and then as a colorless option, Shimmer Drift Veil vale was super powerful early in the draft because it gave you a lot of flexibility when you chose what color of land you wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And then past that, Replicating Ring, Glittering Frost, I think we're at a tier down. I At the end of the format, I was hoping to just not put those cards in my deck because I felt like they weren't worth the slot most of the time. But at the beginning of the format, I was, you know, actively hoping to pick up, you know, two Glittering Frost because it basically meant you could play all of the busted cards you got past. You just get past less busted cards these days. Right. As people catch up to, okay, these are the most powerful things. You know, people aren't going to be passing those Draugr Necromancers anymore. Maybe they were doing that in weeks one or two or whatever. And the thing about the cards like Replicating Rain and Glittering Frost is, yeah, they enable those busted things, but then you're going to be having, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21 mana sources in your deck, and you need to have the good stuff to mitigate that flood. Right. And I think, you know, bringing up the rear Horizon Seeker, maybe even Jasper Sentinel to a lesser extent, Jasper Sentinel is not really fixing for the snow decks. It's more its own other thing. But I, it was weird in that all of this fixing made snow feel homogenous, right? Like the first 20 drafts of the format, I hated because I felt like I had to draft snow and I had to pick these cards and I had to build a multicolored pile. And it's way more fun to build a multicolored deck when it's not shoved down your throat, I think. That's the that's the Deathsy take too, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I very much felt that way. My first 20 drafts of the format. I, I did not. I, lo- I love that. I'll do that all, <laughs> all day, every day. I'm happy, happy to have that as a as a viable archetype every draft. But, you know, I, I definitely I definitely feel that. All right, moving on. Number four, tracking Snowlands is both important and not at all important. Talk to me about this. Yeah. So, I mean, this was like my thing at the start of the format was I wanted to to try and, you know, sometimes I would take the Snowland first just to be like, all right, I'm going to send that signal to the left that I'm crazy and I'm just going to take these Snowlands and let everyone know that they can't draft snow. And I eventually realized that no one was paying attention to that and it didn't matter. <laughs> but I do think it's important to track it for yourself. You know, that sort of thing of like, okay, I'm going to take Spirit of the Alder Guard. I'm going to take an Icebind Pillar. I'm going to take a Snowland. And then if picks four through six, the Snowland is missing. I'm going to have to jump ship. 
this is going to be something where I, I need to, to get off of it. Whereas similarly, you know, if you're paying attention to maybe the Snowland's missing in pick four, but then you see it pick five, it's missing in six, then you see it seven, eight. It's like, okay, so maybe someone's picking up a dual land for their color pair that they think they are, but snow in general looks to be open. I'm wheeling that Priest of the Haunted Edge, whatever. All of those things, there's an interesting element when you when there's that known information in the pack that you can uh, use to your advantage. Yeah, absolutely. My experience with tracking Snowlands at the moment is usually in pack three, praying that some like white blue duel or white green duel is going to wheel for me to splash one card and it doesn't come back around. <laughs> Classic Ben Warney, why me? Yep. Number five, the living weapon equipment are all better than you think. So these are the, the uncommon equipment that have a, an additional cost you can pay to have a creature token come in and then attach that equipment to it. So like Dwarven Hammer or, or Valkyrie Sword, etc. Yeah, absolutely. These living weapon equipments were very, very powerful, especially in Sealed. You know, we had we had the chance to do Sealed for Kaldheim, you know, thanks to the Arena Open. Mm-hmm. And I think they were really powerful there, but also in Draft too. Dwarven Hammer, I think just is one of the best red uncommons, if not the best red uncommon. I think Elven Bow, super key for the green decks, you know, being able to come up the ground and the air, you know, go to the late game with the snow decks. And Valkyrie's Sword is just good in the white aggressive decks as a two mana equipment and three to equip for plus two plus one. And then heaven forbid you top deck it late in the game and you get a six five flying angel. Also, you know, I think with Valkyrie Sword or Dwarven Hammer, forging the Tyrite Sword was pretty much, I think, written off at the beginning of the format as absolute junk. That's the red white uncommon saga that gives you some treasure and lets you search up an equipment. When you combine that with Valkyrie Sword, it really, I think, does pull its weight as far as like ramping you to that 6-5 angel and tutoring it up that it ends up actually maybe being potentially playable in some of the red-white controlling shells. Well, even something like Starnheim Courser or a treasure token from a gold vein pick, you know, reducing the kicked cost for Valkyrie Sword from seven to six, that was pretty big game. That that makes it feel a little bit more palatable. And especially with what you're talking about with forging the Tyrite Sword, you could go forging the Tyrite Sword on three, and then that enables you to cast Valkyrie Sword on five and kick it. Right. That's insane. And, and think about a card. You know, if you have a Courser on the battlefield, if I told you in limited, you could have a six mana, six, five flying vigilance that then when it died, left around a plus two, plus one equipment that's busted right yeah it's really really powerful number six one cmc do we have to say mv now mana value no oh man i saw that on the strict saving cards i was like no 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 i just got (laughs) used to like to stop saying add to your mana pool you know yeah oh man rough being a magic boomer these days sure is so one mana value equip costs are i'm just it feels terrible that sounds horrible to me but i guess that's what we have to do now one mana value equip costs are greater than two mana value equip costs. Yeah, much, much greater than. It's kind of wild. Like, I-, I thought Raven's Wings or Raven Wings at the start of the format was really, really strong. But equip two just wasn't good enough for the plus one, plus oh flying there. Like, I just always wanted Goldvein Pick or Tormentor's Helm in my equipment decks. Right, I agree. And I think if you didn't care about the fixing and or ramp from Pick, that Tormentor's Helm was just the best of the bunch. And then I yes. think if you did care about the treasure, then then Pick was tier one, which would have been crazy to me if you told me that, you know, during spoiler season. Yeah. And Raven's Wings, I think, does get there if you don't get enough of those other copies. Like, it's fine. It's a fine equipment. It just is noticeably worse than the equipment with one CMC equipped. And similarly, I mean, Rune Crown is very, very powerful when you get to two drop a rune and add maybe, you know, lifelink or power and toughness and trample to that thing. But then equip two always felt bad. I'm like, I'd much rather have my runes on my picks or my helms because it's much easier to move those around. It is a lot easier to move those around. I I am a Rune Crown believer at this point. That those that cycle of cards are the 
things that I've had the biggest turnaround. There was a point three weeks ago, four weeks ago that I was just like, nope, this is terrible. I'm done. I know. But it was mostly because I didn't understand it and I wasn't putting them in the right decks. Yeah, no, um, I'm glad to hear you came around on because I think those cards are super, super sweet. And I think it's really cool that they are a deck in and of themselves or a plan in and of themselves rather than like each one sort of going into the, the, the colors themselves. Like they're more together as a whole than they are like you put the white one in the white decks or whatever right i mean i definitely am trying to put them in on color decks at this point but i do think that that common equipment and the naya colored runes were defining characteristics of the format yeah i agree completely number seven one drop first strikers are the truth in aggro and honestly in tandem with each other are the truth on blocks as well. Battlefield Raptor and Ferocious Pup are just aces in this format. Yep, very good. And I think just especially stupid with the equipment or, you know, heaven forbid, you get the black rune on an equipment and then, you know, they can play offense, they can play defense. Those cards are oppressive. And I think Battlefield Raptor, people were on a lot quicker than Ferocious Pup. I I know that's true for myself. They were not equivalent in my head for the first, you know, month of the format. And then I played Ferocious Pup a little bit more and I was like, whoa, this is really good. I'm, you know, close to as good as Battlefield Raptor. I mean, it just didn't take much. You got one extra power on Ferocious Pup and all of a sudden it was like a real problem, not only on on blocks, like, you know, it held off a fair number of creatures, but then it just felt like you could never block it. You can't gang block it for power of first strike or threatening to have four power of first strike. That's big game. Yep. Number eight, balance your creature augmentations and know if you want tricks or equipment. Yeah, there was sort of this, again, well, maybe we'll use this. This is going to be the uh, the magic word of the episode, this dichotomy of, you know, you have augmentations in, in the form of all these equipment that we've been talking about, but you also had really good augmentations in terms of combat tricks, namely Runamuck and Kaya's Onslaught together, though Onslaught was uncommon. Even something like Wings of the Cosmos. I mean, Runamuck was the leader of this. Like there were so many times in the format where I would ask myself on attacks, like, well, if they have Runamuck, can I survive? Can I make good blocks? That sort of thing. I think you really wanted to make sure that you were in one of those two camps and not sort of like picking a few cards from each side. I agree. And equipment was generally better than the run amok plan. Would you agree with that? I would agree. And I think I maybe was a little too strict in terms of like, well, if I'm the equipment deck, then I really don't want to run any of these run amucks or whatever. And I think, you know, you could have one in there in tandem with, you know, a bunch of equipment or whatever. That, that card was, was in particular quite strong. But yeah, the equipment was really, really good. Absolutely. Do you remember at the beginning of the format when everyone was all hot and bothered about run amok? being the truth just wasn't the case right it just wasn't i mean it's fine it's a fine card but like people would be like oh that's like you know you take that over blah i'm like I, you need two drops before you can take brunamucks sorry folks number nine seraph's packmate is the best common and it's not even close to close i mean i remember waffling around a little bit like i feel like we we nailed whatever those top three which i don't even think is that is true anymore but you know everyone was on bolt behold and packmate as the top three commons of the format. And I think Behold has fallen from grace and we'll get to that in a little bit. But then I think it took me maybe to week three to be like, all right, I recognize the Pac-Mate as the best common. And it's so funny, again, coming off the heels of Zendikar Rising, where Jiraga Visionary, we were like, oh man, four mana, three, two ETB draw card. But that card just like didn't matter. And then we saw Pac-Mate and we were like, eh, is this also not going to matter? And boy, howdy, does it matter? Yeah, it matters in a big way. So I didn't even have this in my top three green commons going into the format before we played with the cards. First time it was cast, I was like, okay, that's the best green common, like moved it up in my pick order, you know, just had to see it happen. And then, you know, after the next like three or four weeks of, you know, just every time my green opponent foretold something on turn two in my head saying, please don't be Pac-Mate, please don't be Pac-Mate. 
finally realized that it was just like way better than every other card. And it is because it's such a brick wall on defense when you foretell it on turn two and then play it on turn three. If you do that on the play, your aggro opponents are so far behind. Three, three is such a big thing to punch through and then it replaced itself. It's just such a good road bump for the green decks to get to the other bigger and better stuff that they want to do. And it I don't know. I, I love that card so much. It's so good. Number 10, Fortel was a great mechanic, but the blue-white Fortel deck rarely came together. I don't know about you, but even when I played blue-white, I didn't necessarily feel like I was a Fortel deck. I felt like I was a blue-white control deck, first and foremost. Yeah, which is awkward for a number of reasons, because white doesn't really play control very well. You know, every time I saw blue-white from my opponent, I was like, it it sort of felt like when you saw blue-white in War of the Spark. You know, when you saw someone play blue white, you're like, oh, you have time wipe. Yes. When I saw someone play blue white in call time, I immediately was like, oh, you have Doomscar. That's one of the major reasons to draft that deck. But it's this awkward thing because white doesn't play a defensive deck very well. And blue doesn't really play any role very well. Like it's a, it's a support role in a lot of things in a blue red giants deck or in a, a you know blue green snow deck or whatever, but it doesn't really do a thing on its own very well. So you can't do this like tempo thing. I don't know. But then I found like if I was going to be in blue white, if it wasn't for rares which it should be then it was for stuff like vega and nico defies destiny coming around super late and then i was incentivized to take foretell cards but yeah that deck just like it just didn't come together very often because it was not only reliant on these uncommons but those uncommons weren't even that good well and i think the other thing that's interesting about foretell was that there was a lot of stuff about foretell you know changing your curve you know when we were in preview season was it going to affect how we build decks and things like that and i don't think it did really other than that Cyril's packmate was busted enough that you could put that in the two drop slot in your deck because that right. was an acceptable use of Rihanna. other than that it just really added flexibility to cards yeah but i, I do think foretell was an incredibly good limited mechanic Oh, yeah, absolutely. Blast to play with. And I think one of the other things that Blue White did really well that wasn't super obvious was a lot of the blue cards wanted you to have snow. And it was difficult, I think, to get snow lands, but you could get the blue cards that cared about snow and nobody wanted snow planes. So you could just get all the snow planes on the wheel and kind of play like a blue white snow deck without having to pay a high cost to get your white Snowlands. Yeah, that's super smart. That's definitely a good thing to like think about coming back to the format because I don't think you know if, if if you're listening to this in anticipation of a flashback called Heimset, uh, I don't think that's something that that's going to be on a lot of people's radar. Number eleven, sealed was about having a good greed pile or a good aggro deck, but nothing in between. No mid range. Coming from the arena open cash man himself. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I mean, this point doesn't really probably won't hold a lot because I don't think anyone's going to be coming back to play Kaldheim for sealed. But it was the first, you know, coming back to this in the history books, it was the first sealed tournament for money on arena. And that's pretty, pretty big deal. And you cashed it, which is awesome. Huge congrats to you. Thrilled about that. Thank you. Thank you. But yeah, that that was the key to success there. And I think that's probably the key to success in sealed just in general. It was just that I think this format in particular, because of all the fixing, enabled those greed piles so well. Right. If you got the fixing and you got good cards, you were definitely supposed to play fixing and all your good cards. If you didn't get that, you really had to be try to be as streamlined as you could to try to combat those decks. Number 12, there were two tiers of decks in the format. Decks you drafted frequently and decks that you did not draft very often at all. (laughs) So the frequently decks we have here are Snow, and that sort of encompasses a lot of, you know, Simic, Sultai-based Snow decks, Blue-Red Giants, Red-White Aggro, Green-White Aggro, Green-Black Elves, perhaps the last shift of the metagame, and Red-Green Beatdown. And then in the infrequent, we've got Blue-White, White-Black, 
red, black, and blue, black. Rest in peace, black decks. Yeah, so sad. <laughs> but I do think, you know, this is interesting to me in that, like, normally we have tiers of decks, right? There's, like, tier one, tier two, tier three. And this format didn't, this is another dichotomy thing. This format didn't feel that way to me. It felt like, you know, any of those frequent decks, if you, you know, got the good cards for them, they were a great archetype. And even the infrequent decks, if you got a good version, they were great and could compete with the best decks. They just, because of how the cards worked and what it was easy to get yourself into, they just didn't come together nearly as often. Well, and this goes back to the point of like, you could sort of do what you wanted a lot of the time. And so then why would I ever navigate myself towards these decks that were hard to come together? Number 13, the Lords of Limited official color power rankings. Green, number one, followed by three greater than signs <laughs> to red, number two, white, number three, blue and black tied for number four. But I think, you know, blue greater than black here for me. Yeah, probably true. Ultimately, I think that blue is a little bit better than black. I think blue took serious knocks for me late in the format because it was so hard to reliably get the snow stuff. It just felt like the the point that you made. And I think you were on this Naya thing before I even was, you know, a month or so ago. You were like, you know, green, green, red, and white are the best colors in the format. And I was like, are blue and black really that shallow? Because I felt like blue was still good at that time. But almost all of the blue cards ask something of you. Like they're powerful, but they want you to get Snowlands. Or they're powerful, but they want you to get this other thing. They're just very finicky. The other thing is that if you look at it under the lens of the, the five R's, you know, the raw power, reasons, rewards role players replaceables green red and white have a lot of role players a lot of strong role players whereas blue and black once you get about halfway through the commons they're all replaceable you know like can you play a draugr thought thief the three two that that surveils one for sure yeah that's like totally fine i'm not embarrassed to put that on my deck if i need that in my curve or whatever but that is the definition of replaceable and blue and black are chock full of those kinds of cards Yes, I agree completely. The format definitely ended up being, I want to be Naya, and I want to be green first and foremost if I can be for me. Yeah, which is a far cry from where I started. I think I started with red and white at the back of the list. I think I was, because of how much snow I was drafting, I was like, oh, this is a Sultai format for sure. But that just didn't end up being how things shook out eventually because, you know, once people caught on, blue and black's shallowness revealed themselves. Yes, I think so. I, the format definitely has been better for me the more it's matured. I have enjoyed it more and more and more as I've gone on, Part, partly because I struggled and was doing it wrong in the beginning, and I feel like I had my footing, so I'm enjoying winning now. Mm -hmm. But it just was refreshing to not have to draft snow every draft as the format went on. Yeah, and I think that constant shift was a fun puzzle to solve. And I'll be interested to see how that ages in terms of, you know, in six months when we get to draft this again, I think those complex formats or those formats that mature end up maybe not aging so well in that respect. Because when you go back to draft it, everybody's like, this was the snow format. And then you just like, <laughs> can't do anything good. You know, like, I feel like Innistrad is like one of those formats that everyone loved, but like everything you want to do when you go back to that format is either draft like spider spawning or burning vengeance. And the format is not fun to go back to now. Right. Number 14, Jasper Sentinel is Mox Emerald with stats and types, <laughs> baby. This ended up being the third best green common for me. So this card has gone on quite a journey. And I think it's maybe even like a little overhyped right now or that because it's hyped by content creators, other people are putting in decks where it doesn't belong necessarily. But so my first experience playing with this card was that it was good. You know, I put it in a green black elves deck that wanted to splash a card that had a good curve. And that's exactly where its home is. But it does a lot of things for you in the format it in the non green snow decks 
it, it ramps you to your pack mates. It ramps you to your ravenous lindworms. In elves specifically, you know, it's a body that then you can sacrifice to village rites after it's served its purpose and turned it into two cards. It lets you splash other powerful cards. It just does all of these small things really, really, really well. And sort of like Forbidden Friendship, you know, when you take it, it makes other cards better and it opens up options for you, you know, in the draft and in deck building. Yeah, I, I think referring to it as Forbidden Friendship or or the golden egg of the format, which we, we haven't crowned it. I'm now realizing we haven't crowned anything. So maybe Jasper Sentinel, is it the golden egg of the format? I think it might be. It's either that or Mast Vandal for me. And I think Jasper Sentinel is enough of an overlooked card that I think I want to give it to Jasper Sentinel. So here's the thing about Golden Egg and Forbidden Friendship versus Jasper Sentinel is I think Golden Egg and Forbidden Friendship ask nothing of your deck in terms of its composition later on. Like it's just gonna be good and going to make a lot of other things better. Whereas I feel like Jasper Sentinel asks something of me in terms of, you know, I want to check all those boxes. I want to make sure that I care about either ramp or fixing. I want to make sure I have a lot of good two drops to enable it early. But then I also want to make sure that I have something to do with the body later on, whether or not it's, you know, an elf adding to my Skemfar Shadow Sage drain, or if it's something I can sack to village rights or donate with Trickster God's Heist or whatever. But I do think you want to have all those boxes checked for this card. Yes, I agree. Number 15. I'm so glad I get this point. Ox plus plow ended up being more mean than real. Very powerful if you hit both, but pretty abysmal if you didn't. There's not really a good shell for it. I guess like a white-based control deck is the best because you want to make sure you care about the 06. I basically spent about two weeks chasing this dream <laughs> and I just would get so mad. I like had drafts where I ended up, I think I had three plows and an ox in my first five picks and then I just never saw another ox and they all all those cards ended up on the sidelines for me because you just like can't run it. So it's not only an anemic package in terms of getting it to come together in draft, but then you also have to draw the pieces together. Like I was chasing this high. I don't know if you've ever attacked with a plow on turn three, but it is insanely powerful. And then you play a four drop or whatever, but then that just doesn't come together that often. So I would just say avoid it, folks. Yes, it just doesn't come together often enough. And it's too big of a cost when you draw one piece without the other. Number 16, Kaya's Onslaught plus Runamuck is one of the many Splinter Twin combos in the format. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I ever actually pulled this off, but this was something that I think folks pegged, you know, even from spoiler season of like, ooh, these two combat tricks, that's just like wins out of nowhere. I was definitely on the receiving end of it uh, at least once. And there were a lot of these like two card wombo combos that existed in the format. Yeah, I think this is very good. Can confirm I have done this many times and you kill your opponent quite dead. Number 17, Behold the Multiverse is less good than you think it is. And this is, I think, something, this is a pretty recent addition to our thoughts about the format, I would say, at least for myself. You know, I was one of the last drafts that I've, I've done of Kaldheim on stream. I took a Mistwalker over a Behold the Multiverse and I didn't really even talk about it, and I can't, couldn't really articulate it in the moment why I was doing it, but it just felt right. I was like, I just feel like, and maybe it was coming off of drafting War of the Spark, but I was like, I just feel like I would rather affect the board with a flyer on three than just like sculpt my hand a little better and get some card advantage. Yeah, and just disclaimer, being less good than you think it is, we're, we're not saying this is a bad card. No, no, no. We're saying you should take it slightly lower and or temper your expectations of it when you draft it highly. So there's a couple problems, right? I think one, if you're picking it really highly, like it's, you know, one of the top three commons, it sets you up to draft blue without really being a reason to draft blue, right? 
Because if you end up with Beholds and not the other good cards, your deck just has air and you're like trying to draw to the three or four good cards that you have. Well, one of the reasons it was so good at the beginning of the format was if you were ending up in these green-based snow piles, splashing a Behold was easy. You you splash a Behold and an Avalanche Caller in your green-black snow deck, and that's great. But that just doesn't happen very much anymore. So I think that also lowers the stock of Behold the Multiverse as well. And I think blue and in general, Giants and blue snow was overdrafted. And that was where Behold the Multiverse was best. So if you know you're taking these Beholds early, but other people next to you took better uncommons that were blue or whatever, you just end up in an awkward spot. I think it's a little slow in the format also, you know, where red-white aggro, green-white aggro can really beat down hard. I'm on Team Bergstrider and Mistwalker ahead of Behold the Multiverse right now today in the format. I agree with that as well. Number 18, Skemfar Shadow Sage is a key card in the Elves deck. Yeah, why don't you talk about this? This is, uh, like I said, I think this is the last meta shift happened like two or three weeks ago where Green Black Elves sort of had its its surgeon in popularity. So what's going on there? Yeah, I love this card. So it's four mana, two, five, and it drains equal to the number of elves you have on the battlefield, or I guess the creature type that you have the most of, but generally that is elves if you're building your deck properly. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to combine this with cards like Village Rites to get it in the graveyard and then raise the Draugr or rise from the tides to rebuy it back to the battlefield to drain multiple times. And then you just want cards like Herald and any of the rare payoffs. All is, you know, a very real deck. And we could see all of those cards. You know, I did an archetype skeleton of this in my first article for CFB. But then for some reason, nobody drafted it for like the first six or seven weeks of the format. But it actually is a very good deck. And I think a lot of that was just discovering that green was a very good color, even if you weren't snow. Yeah. Number 19, the official Lords of Limited Gold Uncommon Power Rankings. We'll go We'll go top to bottom. Number one, Egar the Freezing Flame. Number two, Svela Ice Shaper. Number three, Cole the Forge Master. Number four, Morite of the Frost. Number five, Narfi Betrayer King. Number six, Harald, King of Skemfar. Number seven, Maya, Bredegard, Protector. Number eight, Furia, Judge of Valor. Number nine, Vega the Watcher. And number 10, sorry, buddy, Carter, Doom Scourge. Yeah, I mean, I feel like really confident about those top three, and then it gets a little murky there, but Egar, Svela, and, and Cole. Cole just, Cole's my boy. That might be my favorite card in the whole format. Cole's a good card, yeah like it quite a bit. Number 20, Turgid Shadow might be the card that dropped the most in value over the course of the format from where I had it at the start to where it is now. Yeah, I mean, I talked about this on the podcast that that revelation came to me on the podcast reviewing one of my draft logs. I was like, it felt bad at the time taking this, but I still was like, this is a good card. This should be a good card. But there's just too narrow of a window. Not only does it have to be a good matchup for you to, to fire off this card? But then there's even in those good matchups where the card is going to do work, there's this super narrow window where you got to make sure that it nabs those two creatures and they don't get you know a 1-1 token from a Clarion Spirit or a 1-1 Elf from an Elderleaf Mentor. And then this card is just atrocious. Yep. And you can't even affect the board while you're doing it. You know, you're trying to, you're like, oh, I'm being so sneaky. I foretold this. <laughs> and then I won't cast a creature. And then your opponent's like, you're dead. And you're like, oh, yes, I am dead. Excellent. <laughs> and, and they get to then see it in foretell if you're going to like game two or game three they're like oh yeah you have that card great now i know to play around it in game two speaking of number 21 the format seemed like it would be all about sweepers but a lot of them fell flat you know when i did my i think this is maybe the only point in the, the article i did for cfb where i talked about the rules of engagement is that i don't actually think sweepers dictated that much you know doomscar is insane but white control isn't 
Blood on the Snow is great, but six mana is a lot. Like that's that's a, a sweeper that you are able to, I think, maybe play around a little bit, or that you can kill your opponent before they fire off. I know, I know this next one was a card that you were on being an underperformer as well. Yeah, Battle of Frost and Fire underperformed pretty hard. I think there were just too many changelings and giants was too good that you were matched up against either giants or changelings enough that this just was not a wrath. Good card, but not insane. And if your opponent ever played a Grizzled Outrider or a Ravenous Lindworm before you played this, you, it just felt horrible. Yes, amen. Yeah, Turgrid Shadow was terrible. And the, the red deal two or the land, uh, Certland Frostpire that dealt two, those were just like, meh, whatever, just didn't matter. So as much as I was like, oh, there's so many cards that these like mass sweeper effect or various sweeper effects, they just didn't end up really mattering that much. Number 22, Vesker Shieldmate is the best common two drop in aggro decks. I mean, it might just be the best common two drop, period. I would buy that, I think. I mean, it's real good. Like Masked Vandal, but that's not really a two drop, you know? You're not, no, you're yeah. Not, you, if your opponent plays a Vesker Shieldmate, then you're thrilled to drop Vandal on two, but otherwise you're hoping to play that a little later in the game. Yeah, like I said before, if you had told me that Story Seeker would have been much worse than Vesker Shieldmate, I'd have called you crazy, especially knowing if you... Even if on top of that, you were like, but equipment's very good. I'd be like, great. Then I want to beef up my lifelinker. No, no, no. What you want is two bodies from one card. And Besker Shieldmate gets that job done. Number 23, Magda Brazen Outlaw looks unassuming, but it's actually just busted. Now, again, talking about two drops in the format, this might just be the best two drop in the format. This card is so absurd. Every time either you or your opponent plays this into another dwarf and makes any amount of treasure, the game is just over. The mana advantage you get from Magda is unreal. The play pattern of foretell Dwarven Reinforcements on two, cast it on three, cast Magda on four, your Dwarven Reinforcement tokens are three ones, they both attack, make two treasures, like that is, you're just done. The game is over. You've snowballed out of control. Speaking of busted rares that are unassuming, number 24, however many things you think Maskwood Nexus can do, it does more than that. If you're signed up for uh, Channel Fireball Extra, which you should be because it's a free newsletter you get every day, uh, you saw my piece, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, where I talked about all the things. I didn't even fit in all the things that Maskwood Nexus can do <laughs> in the format. But just like there, are, if you just go through the spoiler and see how many incidental things are like cares about creature types like Magda. I mean, that is the Wamboist of combos. But like I had the opportunity so many times in the day two arena open to have Maskwood Nexus in play and just like you know, my opponent was at seven. I have seven creatures. Great. Skemfar Shadow Sage wins the game for me. Or Basalt Ravager can just dome your opponent. You know, there's just so many tiny little things that it's so good on top of being able to generate three mana tutus. Number 25, the Cadillac. Was the, where did this come from? Cadillac? Twitch yeah. chat, I think. So good. <laughs> AKA Asika's Chariot. This is the glory bringer of the format. This is the best rare, right? I think. I think it's probably behind Starnheim Unleashed. I think it goes Starnheim Unleashed, Cadillac, then Coma for me. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm saying non-mythic. Oh, sure. Yeah, hands down the best rare. Yeah, this card is just busted. What is the... I'm gonna put you on the spot here. I don't know if you know this off, off the top of your head. Do you know the best thing you've ever copied? Like, yeah, what's the best token you've copied with Chariot? Oh, I have only copied cats. Bummer. I've copied four four angel tokens from uh, from the I'm forgetting the, the name of it, but the land that makes the four four angel when you sack a creature. Great Hall of Starnheim, I think. That seems very unnecessary. <laughs> what, what do you mean? Yeah, sometimes sometimes a uh, eight power and toughness potentially ten after you copy a token. It just isn't enough, Ben. You need multiple flyers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Number twenty six. Ravenous Lindworm is almost as good as Sorol's Packmate. 
hot take alert here. Hot take alert. Get your get your air conditioners out, folks, because <laughs> it's a scorcher. So hear me out. I think this card is the card that determines the outcome of games at common more than any other common, more than removal spells, potentially even more than Searle's Packmate. You know, it's good against aggro and control. And maybe this is biased because of best of one, but I am pretty confident that this is true in best of one because if you're playing against an aggro deck and you play lindworm all of a sudden you're stable and you have a huge threat that they have to deal with that brick walls them and if you're playing the control mirror you have this huge threat that they have to deal with and i think it just plays well with so many other cards like Lichara mirror lake or you know struggle for skimfar you know put a raven's wings on it it just is an insane win condition at common that you can have multiple copies of in your deck. You could literally sign me up for a deck with six ravenous lindworms right now and best of one, and I'd be like, yes, amen, let's do it. The card just determines the outcome of games. So I think hearing you say it like that has keyed me into, and it's now too late because we're, we're saying goodbye to the format, but what makes this card something you can load up on? You know, the cards that I always reference of, you know, once you get to four mana, five mana, six mana, you know, you don't want to load up on spells. And that's the sort of thing that has stopped me from hopping on the Linworm train is I'm like, yeah, it's great, but I can't pick it over this two drop, right? Because I need the two drop more than the six drop. Except that if you think about the cards that you can load up on in, in not so recent memory, but the cards that I always think about are like Chillbringer and Grasping Thrall from Ravnica Allegiance. And it was like, yeah, these cards are five mana, but they're so impactful that you can chain them together. And I think if I, you know, we get that huge life gain boost, which does, you know, gain you that tempo that a Chillbringer or a Grasping Thrall does. But not only that, but, you know, Chillbringer and Grasping Thrall are three, three flyers. So they're evasive threats. But Lindworm is kind of an evasive threat in that it is keyword big. You know, everything there's there are a few things in the format that can kill it sure squash can sure feed the serpent but outside of that you're gonna probably have to spend multiple resources to get this card off the battlefield i think that's true my and in all seriousness not trying to be hot takey right now if you showed me pack one pick one between ravenous lindworm and demon bolt it's really close for me and my heart wants to take ravenous lindworm in that in that spot wow yeah, that's all, all I can say is wow. All right, number 27. <laughs> Call Time had the most challenging drafts deep into the format of any format since we've started the podcast. And I think that's true. I think, you know, maybe with the exception of Hour of Devastation, that's the only other format I can think of. And that was our first format from when we started. That's the only other format I can think of that had so many metagame shifts. Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. But I think Call Time, just like that was... That's one of the biggest takeaways for me is how fun it was to navigate those shifts and, and try and maybe be a little ahead of the curve, too, if you could. And it's not even necessarily the shifts, just the the setting yourself up, the fact that you got to dictate so much of the course of what happened in the draft. And there was a very much risk reward to that type of thing for whether you were going to try to hedge or stick with your lane or audible into aggro because you felt like this lane you're in was closed. There was just a lot of things to do in the draft, a lot of hard decisions. Yeah, I still feel like there are times where I would see picks and I'd be like, I, I could really see three viable options here. Or even in deck text this late in the format, I would feel like I can get you to 38 cards and then two of these five are what you want to put in. And it's sort of up to you about how you want to build this deck. Number 28, Bloodline Pretender was secretly an elves card all along. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a good card. But elves is where you have the real like explosive potential like this into 
elder leaf mentor and now it's a four four was just such an easy three four punch to do yeah and i had thought it was giants for a while because it was a three drop giant that's just not the case i think yeah. it's next best home after elves is a white deck with humans or warriors or that sort of thing i think it's probably next best home is like a red based berserker deck like red black berserkers probably but that just doesn't come together that often number 29 here we go folks gold vein pick was both simultaneously underrated and by a lot of you out there overrated <laughs> yeah and more dichotomies but this card I think was very misunderstood. It's a great card in the format. It's probably the best common equipment in most decks, but you have to have the cheap aggressive creatures. If you're relying on it for fixing at all, you have to pretty much have battlefield raptors, I think, for it to be a great card and reliably give you fixing. If not, you're just kind of happy if it gives you some incidental ramp, but just counting Goldbane pick as fixing and not paying attention to your composition of your deck was a recipe for disaster. Agreed. Number 30, the official Lords of Limited rune power rankings. Here we go. White, by a significant margin, I think. The white one's insane. Next, I could be, it's close between red and green. I've got red ahead of green, mostly because I think they perform best in red and white. And then in number three, green. And then big gap, black rune, and then huge gap. Blue rune was just essentially, you know, not important at all. Right. You know, when we talked about the runes, I don't know, a month into the format back when you were like, "Ah, I'm not into this. After that episode in our uh, discord discussions for that episode, Ari Lax was like, the blue rune is just like build your own Raven wings. And when he said that, I was like, (laughs) oh yeah, that is what it is. And I don't want to do that. So (laughs) I was just like effectively off it. Not only to mention that, but like then in blue, like what are you giving flying and, you know, Augury Raven and Mistwalker already have evasion. It just like doesn't cut it. But I agree. White, red and green. You know, I, I think I, I agree with red ahead of green there because of the bump for red caring more about equipment than green does. And those things, putting them on equipment and turning all of your small dorks into real cards is a good plan in the format. Number 31, Raiders Carve was always a gigantic problem on the battlefield, but you had to have the right deck composition to want to include it. A couple things had to go right slash wrong right you just sort of had to be a little shy of playables and then i think you wanted basically six or seven ways to curve this into something that could crew it and then i think you were just happy to play it like a four four that had the potential to ramp you that was big it is and every time my opponents played it i was like huh that's a huge problem. And I kept like, for then for after I realized that for about a month, I was like, I, I want to play Raiders Carve. And I only came together like a couple times for me. I don't know if it was just the cards I valued or the way I drafted that it didn't come together often, but it's a good card. Yeah, I think it was just generally overlooked as like trash filler. And I think that's where we're, we were at you know, the first few weeks into the format. But I definitely think as, you know, the better cards started getting snapped up more, this was definitely a serviceable threat. Number 32, Fortel didn't affect the way you build your curves in Limited. I agree with that, except I did, I maybe it was just for my mind, that's where I always put all the Fortel cards was in the two-drop slot. Unless they were like, you know, Shepherd of the Cosmos or whatever. Like, if, But if I could cast it, if I could foretell on two and then cast it on three, I would put it in my two drop slot. I think Pac-Made and Dwarven reinforcements are the two poster childs for that. I mean, Augury Raven, I guess, but you're mm-hmm. not very excited about doing that. No, but you just, but the fact that you can, that it's something to do with your mana on turn two, I think did like, you know, if you looked at a deck that had a bunch of whatever, yeah, if you, uh, they're all in your four drop slot, you're not, these aren't good cards that are coming to my mind, but like, you know, Jarl or... You know, you said Augury Raven or Skull Raid. Skull Raid's another card that like really fell from grace. Ooh, yeah. But I, I agree. It didn't really affect the way you built your curve. You still had to, you still wanted to make sure you affected the board on turn two more than just like yes. dropping something into exile. 
Yep. Number 33, the uncommon cycle of lands ranged from great to fine. The official Lords of Limited Power Rankings. Brrr. Number one, Lityara Mirror Lake. Number two, Axgard Armory. Number three, Bredegard Stronghold. Number four, Skemfar Elderhall. Number five, Notvold Slumber Mound. Number six, Gates of Istfel. Number seven, Immersturm Skullcairn. Number eight, Sirtland Frostpire. Number nine, Great Hall of Starnheim. Number 10, Port of Carfell. And here's the deal with these cards. So these are just like, obviously, you're just going to play them mostly in, you know, the decks where this is the two color card for. But also in your multicolor piles, you should basically be playing any of the ones that are in line with your two main colors. So if I'm green, I'm playing Skemfar Elderhall. I'm playing Bredegard Stronghold, even if there's just a very, very slim chance. You know, I have to, my way to assemble double white is with a Glittering Frost and a Sculptor of Winter untapping that land. And that's fine because the cost of a tap land is low enough that the ceiling of getting that spell effect in the mid to late game is so huge. Right. This is also one of the things that pick can do, right? If you've got your Battlefield Raptors and your Goldbane picks and you can splash your Gates of Istfel in red white if you want to do that. Right. As long as you feel like a tap land doesn't affect, you know, you being able to play a Raptor on turn one that much. Number 34, Valkmira Protector's Shield was miserable to play against especially on arena. Yeah, auto assign damage lost a lot of people games with this card because, you know, it, it prevents that one damage. So I attack with a thing and then you think you're double blocking to kill my thing and then, oh no, it's preventing that one damage to each of those creatures and both of my creatures survive and your creature's now dead. Yeah, auto, this single-handedly got me to uncheck auto assign damage. And then I still got got this last week by trample damage because it trampled over to their life total and i didn't think that i needed to plus one the damage when i had a creature with trample oh man this card i was wondering why this was on this list so this is a fresh wound for you (laughs) (laughs) yes number 35 blue was the color that cared about snow the most which was kind of unintuitive because it seemed like it should have been green and i didn't really figure this out until jamming a bunch of sealed and that was always what I checked my sealed pool for was Avalanche Collar, Icebind Pillar, and Bergstriders. Yeah, green really didn't need to be snow. And I think green almost might have been in its best when it wasn't snow because of things like Pacmate, Lindworm, Jasper Sentinel. I think those were the three best green commons almost in a certain sense. Yeah, and I think uh, Struggle for Skemfar is in there as well. You know, once you remove Frost, Sculptor, and Ice Hide Troll from the equation, green is all of a sudden you're just like, oh, it's just a normal color. And you can get your get your fixing from Sentinel or you can just be elves or you can be a go-wide green-white aggro deck or whatever. Yeah. Number 36, how you wanted to draft the format influenced your personal pick orders in a huge way in this format. So more so than any other format, I really think you could dictate where you wanted to end up in a big way based on how you valued cards. If you want to end up in snow, you know, pick the snow lands aggressively and hope people aren't cutting you. If you want to end up in white, pick your best gear shield mates, pick your bound in golds highly. If you want to be in green, you know, just draft green cards. I think green is deep enough that you can just draft green cards and whatever Lindworms and Packmates you happen to pick up gives you a green deck. You really could. It felt cubey almost in a certain yeah, sense. Yeah, I was just thinking that, you, that. You could say like, I want to draft this deck this time around. Yeah. And I think this is sort of borne out in this 50 takes. You know, this is simultaneously, this was hard, <laughs> another dichotomy. Simultaneously, this was a really hard 50 takes list to come up with. You know, I sat down to try and do this. Uh, I took a trip to see my folks this weekend. I was in the car, like trying to do stuff on my notepad and couldn't really come up with a lot. I think 
you know, you, you, after you took a bunch of these, you're like, ah, it's, it's hard to get these succinct points because even you and I have had different experiences and different preferences and what we want to do in the format. Yep. Number 37, Raven form and Wither Crown are bad. You can play as many basic lands as you want, folks. Rest in peace, Foxy's preview card. Ooh. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> Number 38, single colored pip for tell costs lets you splash double pipped cards like Poison the Cup or Shepherd of the Cosmos. This was a huge part of building decks in the format, I think. Yeah, I, a lot of times in like a red, white, you know, whatever. If it was an aggro deck or, or a coal control deck, if I had a gold vein pick or a couple gold vein picks, I felt pretty good about you know, jamming that poison the cup in my red white deck, or if I'm red black, jamming that shepherd of the cosmos in that deck because a couple of treasure tokens, a seize the spoils, and you're all good to go. Number 39. It is possible to cast a turn four coma cosmos serpent or Tybalt cosmic imposter in this format, Ben. How do you do it? You sculptor of winter into glittering frost into the bomb of your choice on turn four. That is disgusting. <laughs> That's so gross. Number 40. Notvold Recluse has reach. Jasper Sentinel has reach. Yeah, we don't really have the card here, except I will say, Ben, I have attacked an embarrassing number of times into Arachnoform. <laughs> wow, that has not gotten me. I just, like, in my head, I'm like, okay, plus two, plus two. Great, got it. It's a changeling. Sure, it doesn't matter. Let's attack with Augury Raven. And then chat's like, no, no, no. <laughs> So for those of you that are newer to the podcast, we did this for the first time. What was the one in Dominaria that had reach? I don't remember. The one in War of the Spark was Turret Ogre. That's yeah. the one that sticks out to me. Yeah, yeah. But there was like, right when we started doing this, there were these red cards that had reach that didn't seem like they should have reach that everybody was chump attacking into. So this has sort of been an inside joke for the, the 50 Takes episodes if you're newer to the podcast. Yeah. So it doesn't really bear out, except I will say that I it, it is arachnoform for me, embarrassingly. <laughs> <laughs> Number 41, Horizon Seeker and Tuscary Firewalker look like they should be completely insane card advantage or, or land advantage at common but somehow they ended up just being fine yeah i think you know at face value these look like great limited magic cards and they just the mana cost of doing the thing i think was almost too much sometimes i think firewalker's better than horizon seeker for the most part but really, you wanted to be hyper aggro for Firewalker before you were happy because you wanted to be able to hit, you know, your run amok or your ferocious pups. You wanted to be able to do something more than just pray that you hit a land with this activation. See, I think of Firewalker a bit differently. And I think Firewalker is like such an insane piece of the coal control deck, like it being this common card advantage engine in that deck that wants to do that. I feel like Firewalker is still in the must-die camp for me when I see it for my opponent and I value it in those controls. I think of it more as a control card than as an aggro card. Interesting. Number 42, Master Scald plus the uncommon and rare sagas that were removal and or card advantage was really, really powerful when you got to loop those things with Master Scald. So for example, you know, you play your Binding of the Old Gods, you kill a creature, and then you Master Scald, rebuy your Binding of the Old Gods. Rebuying a removal spell, or heaven forbid that you did this in tandem with Showdown of the Scalds, was so, so, so powerful. I mean, usually that ended the game on the first time around, but you know, you could do some sweet loops with Master Scald. Yeah, this is another shift for me, at least. I spent like a whole week just drafting Master Scald Saga decks, and that was so, so fun. This card is really strong. It does like a sort of infinite loop thing with Carter's Vicious Return as well. Man, I, I love Master Scald. That has a, a real sweet spot in the format. And, and I think a sweet spot in that it's not really a white card. It's really more of a splash card when you have the other good sagas. 
Yes, I agree. Number 43, Run Ashore was surprisingly good in this format, and I can't quite figure out why, because Blue didn't really play an aggro tempo role that much, but it just didn't matter. Like being, I think the fact that you could also bounce your own stuff, and that was good sometimes, namely Sagas, and then still get that you know card for card thing by topping or bottoming sometimes if your opponent decided they didn't want the card anymore. Run Ashore did work at the top of the curve. Just ended some games too. Every time I cast her, my opponents cast it. I was like, huh, that was good. <laughs> Yeah. Number 44, in the spirit of the dichotomies we keep talking about, there was a real tension, I think, between the most intrinsically powerful cards leading to less good or less focused decks, and that drafting less, you know, powerful cards in a vacuum oftentimes led you towards better or more focused decks. Do you mean that because like some of the more powerful cards led you to more train wrecky drafts a lot of the time? Yeah, or like the the best cards I think were snow, and the snow decks were oftentimes more piles of good cards and fixing and card draw. Whereas, you know, if you're picking best gear shield mates over your snow lands, you end up with this more focused, streamlined, aggressive deck. So I think in some ways, almost you had to pick less good cards to end up in better decks in some ways in my head. Yeah, like those those decks you're describing, if you're starting off the draft with a bunch of shield mates, you know, the floor of your deck is going to be so much higher. The ceiling may not be as high as, you know, I'm going to start off the draft with coma and then hold on to blue green for dear life or whatever. But the ceiling of that coma deck has the potential to be higher, but you're just going to fail the draft so less often if you just snap up those shield mates. Well, and I think your deck is going to have a more cohesive plan. Like it's going to be, I want to curve out. I want to put this equipment on my thing, augment it. Whereas like a lot of times the snow decks were hope my mana base worked out (laughs) and then I get some ramp and then I get to cast my busted card. You know what I mean? It was a lot less of a deck than relying on the power level of those excellent cards that you drafted. Number 45, lots of uncommons looked like they should be powerful, but ended up falling flat. I mean, I feel feel like this is like the the Besker Shieldmate test here instead of like the Bechtel (laughs) test for movies. Uh, But uh, uh, Battershield Warrior, Fearless Liberator, Frenzied Raider, just to name a few. Shieldmate's just better than all of those. Battershield Warrior, whew. What a terrible card. <laughs> yeah, it just they just didn't end up pulling their weight and they looked like they should be better than they were, maybe just because they were uncommon. Number 46, if you encounter a tough draft, red-white aggro is a good bet to end up with a playable deck. Yeah, I think that was perhaps the biggest shift for me or the the you know the, the farthest journey I took to, to coming around to it. But once I realized just how deep red and white were, I always just felt better, you know, if there was a tie, just like, oh, I'm just gonna take a red card. I'm happy to off ramp here. I just had even some drafts where like I would end up with what looked like a bad red white deck and it would still go 2-1. Like red white was just very reliable. Number 47, the Trickster Gods Heist and Cardor's Vicious Return are perhaps the most misunderstood cards in the format, I think. Preach. The, these cards have really high ceilings, but very low floors. They just need to be evaluated as such, right? Like Elder Fang Disciple is both of these cards' best friends. Carter's Vicious Return as a reanimation spell, like thinking about you get a couple of those and now you want as many Cinderheart Giants as you can get your hands on. And now you have like this potential for a turn six, hasty eight, seven trampler. These cards are really strong. Yeah, I had that deck last night when I got raided by Magic it was pretty sweet. Oh, nice. Number 48, Reflections of Lityara was a big reason to draft Changelings. The, the, the quote unquote tempo loss you got from playing this on turn five to do nothing was so easily made up for by, you know, 
casting Mistwalker and another creature, and now all of a sudden your board is huge. Or even just naming Worm and casting Ravenous Linworm on turn six after this. Oh man, that sounds like a dream. Oh yeah, it's really, really good. This this card, I think, was, even as we approach the end of the format, is, is, is another misunderstood card or underrated card. I'd buy it. Number 49, you had this from the beginning. Bound in gold, I think has given a good name back to pacifism effects. Well, yeah, and it's better than pacifism because it can go on any permanent, right? It can shut down Icebind Pillar. It can, and you can put it on a piece of equipment that has the runes on it that's all suited up so that it can't, you know, once it once that creature dies, it can't go on other creatures. It just did so many other things, and there weren't like tons of good sacrifice or bounce effects to punish it. Yeah, right. Like, I don't think it, it was until the last few weeks that people were playing stuff like Village Rights. Yeah, I've put this on Path of the World Tree to stop an activation. I've put these on Spell Lands. Bound in Gold is very good. Number 50. Overall, Kaldheim was an above average format, but not in GOAT contention. Yeah, I, I think I, as things shook out, I think I ended up liking this format a, a fair bit more than you. And I also think it more than any other format since starting the podcast taught me to exercise preferences and biases in a really good way, which made me feel smart, which obviously I liked. That's that's (laughs) something that magic players want to do. They want to feel smart. I think it's a super cool format. I really enjoyed it. And I think it was here too short, personally. Yeah, this format, I think we had a rocky start. We had a our relationship didn't hit it off from the get go, you know, took took four or five dates. But I think the longer we've gone on, I think this format has continued to get better and better for me. And it has been really deep. And I've enjoyed the drafting. I've enjoyed the gameplay. And I've started to, you know, get over the hump of, you know, losing in best of one or whatever. I've I've been winning a lot in Mythic. And I feel like I do understand the format at this point. And it's good. I, it's not a goat for me, but it has been a very interesting journey. Yeah, agreed. All right, great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you so much to ChannelFireball.com for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading on over to CFB for any and all purchases or signing up for CFB Pro, please use the code LOL when you check out to let them know we sent you there. You can check us out streaming. Ben is still on spring break, baby. He's at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. is spelled out. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. You can check us out on Twitter at both of those handles, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Trusty, what's the, there's, I was going to say a saying there, but I don't know what happened. Trusty something. Do you want to try it again or just? I I don't. Okay. (laughs) Okay.